So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, please open them to Galatians chapter 6. So read with me. We're going to be beginning in in chapter 6. We're going through verses uh, 6 to 10 today, just a few verses, um, but a lot of detail, especially verse 1. It's interesting. So read with me. I'll read the verses for you. Chapter 6, verses 6 to 10. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever he sows, that he also will reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. I feel like I want to pray one more time. Would you bow with me, please? Father, thank you so much again for this day. Uh, Father, I, I pray um, today as, a, as your servant here who brings the word this morning, I pray for your help. I pray for your encouragement. I pray for us that we would be hearers of your word from you, Holy Spirit. We would hear what you intend for us and that these words for us are instruction, yes, but they're because you love us and you want what's best for us. So, Father, I pray that you would teach us today. I pray that we would be eager hearers, but also people eager to respond to you and what it is that you ask us to do. And I ask these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. So, I don't know if you know this, but we are in week 21 of this amazing letter. 21 weeks. We have one more to go. Actually, I'm planning, I thought I was, you know, thinking about a summer series, and we will have some guest speakers in the summer, but I'm planning actually to do... Uh, a three-week recap of this letter focusing on three of the primary themes of this letter because I I believe, I'm feeling, I'm sensing, and I've been hearing from a number of you that this uh, has been a challenging letter but also a very impactful letter. And and it should be because it's an amazing letter that Paul has written. So today is week 21. It's been, I think, a wonderful learning experience, particularly about the gospel, which is what Paul's been defending from day one. I told you early on in the series that it's kind of broken down into three sections. The first two chapters, one and two, are Paul's bio. And what I mean by that, a biography, is that he's actually spending the time in those first two chapters defending his apostleship, his authority, because, of course, the false teachers have come down from Jerusalem, and they're challenging Paul's teaching about the one true gospel. And so he's, he's, he's defending his, his authority as an apostle, which is an important thing. But really, ultimately, what we saw is that he's defending the the authority of God's Word. That's what he's been really defending. And then in chapter 3 and 4, we we see Paul go into this amazing theological and doctrinal discourse uh, about the gospel of faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, period. It's an immense passage. And actually, some commentators say that those two chapters are what Paul then expounds into the whole letter to the Ephesians. Which, if you look at it, if you look at the two, it's, it's pretty much the case. And it's amazing how those two chapters synthesize all that about how our lives are not only, the gospel not only saves us from the point of our conversion and coming to faith in Jesus Christ, but it's the gospel that we need to be sanctified, to live the Christian life. And so now in chapters 5 and 6, he's been putting some flesh on the bone, <laughs> pun intended. It gets very practical, doesn't he? It's really going to the heart of certain things. It's an amazing, amazing passage. And really, in chapter 6, as we saw last weekend, we'll see today, it's about relationships. 
It's about how we get along in the church as men and women, as Christians, together in this body, which we call the church. Early on in the series, I gave some specific examples of how Paul's authority and the authority of God's Word is being challenged in what some call, and I I gently put it this way, the liberal progressive stream of Christianity in our world today, and it's true. Uh, Paul is looked down upon. He's criticized quite a bit. But last week, I saw an interesting article, and again, we need to be mindful of these things, not afraid or worried about them, but the realities that are happening. And things are coming, and I've said this for years to all of you who are young people here today, which means people who are 15 to 20 years younger than me, which is pretty young. I I fear for this generation in the sense that the pressures that are going to come upon you, upon pastors and teachers, is going to be fierce. Just this week, uh, uh, in Alberta, the Battle River School District, a division, um, put out an edict that they've been reading, uh, pardon me, uh, they've been putting together um, a, a new um, program and a new material uh, package that they want to send out to the schools, and particularly to the Christian schools that have joined the Battle River School Division. And they are putting into this booklet specific passages of the Scripture that they do not want taught in the Christian schools. Chapter 5, verses 19 to 24 of Galatians is one of those passages. I won't read it for you today because we've been over it before. It's painful. It's about the works of the flesh, but they don't want it read in the Christian schools. So as we learned last week, Paul turned his attention to applying the gospel to our lives as Christians, especially our relationships. Uh, In chapter 6, verses 1 to 5, he showed us three ways that the gospel brings restoration to our relationships if we're willing to participate in them. When we become fruitful men and women who care for our brothers and sisters in Christ, we do this first by doing this, gently restoring brothers and sisters to their faith who are in sin. In other words, actually getting involved when brothers and sisters are sinning and restoring, which means You know, putting the shoulder that's out of joint back in place because it's painful, it's hurtful. They can't really function that way, so we are to get into their lives. Secondly was to actually bear their burdens, Um, help them get under the weight of something that's really, really unusual, difficult, challenging in their lives at this time, and share in bearing that load with them. And this is one of the ways that we produce fruit as a body and as a church. But number three was interesting. It was about us carrying our own load, right? Us all realizing that, look, I've got a burden to bear. I've got a load, really a smaller package that I'm carrying. And one of the ways that I can help our relationship in the church is by bearing my own load, right? Getting on with it. Life isn't easy. There's pain. There's suffering. We all have to deal with these things. So today he's going to go a little bit further. And I think it might be interesting. hope to show you three things today in our message today. Number one, learn to sow by sharing. Number two, sow well to live well. And number three, keep on sowing. And we'll see that in this, these verses in chapter six. So number one, learn to sow by sharing. Look at this verse again with me, would you? He says, let the one who's taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, I just want to be clear about one thing as we look at this verse, that some might in this room, some people in our church might think, well, this is interesting timing, Pastor. (laughs) It's the Holy Spirit. I had no idea. Um, We tried to have our annual family meeting uh, several weeks ago, so this would be far on past that. But let me just ask you this. Without me saying anything, 
at all about this verse. Like, I don't even have to expound it, tell you anything about it. What do you think it is saying? Simply, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who is teaching. You don't have to answer. I hope it's obvious. But the question is, why would Paul drop this in right here and now? Like, why would he say, which, which is what he's saying, why should we, the ones who are taught, share all good things, financially support, which is what he's saying, those who teach us? Why? Why would he drop that in here? Well, these, this is an important question. And what does that have to do with our relationships in the church? Good question. We're going to get to that. But first, let me show you a few things. The Greek word that's used here for one who is taught is the word katechumenos. Katechumenos. We get the word catechism from that. It's a good word. Some people who were raised Catholic are going, well, I don't know. I don't know if it's still a good word. It is a good word. So those who are being taught the word of God are being, literally, then catechized, right? So when Paul left the churches in Galatia that he planted, he appointed elders in the churches to oversee and to lead those churches. And some of those elders would have also been called upon to teach the Word of God. Well, then he goes on to those who are taught, and he says to them that they are to share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, this word share is one of the key words. There's more key words in this, but it's one of the key words that we need to look at. It's a word that we've all seen before. We've been over this before as a church. It's a word that it's often misunderstood because of the ways that it's misapplied and misspoken in the church for many, many years. It's actually the word koinonia, which is often translated in your Bibles as the word fellowship. Um, so if you've been around churches for very long, you've probably heard that when the ladies, the older ladies in the church are getting together on Tuesday morning for muffins and tea, they're having what? Fellowship, right? Or, or when you're standing outside with... Uh, your friends, and you're having a latte, which again, we don't serve here, but we have good coffee, uh, and you're chit-chatting before you come into the gathering, you're apparently having fellowship. That's the way it's been presented in our church, um, but it's wrong. That's not what fellowship is. It's actually one of the four foundational pillars of what it means to gather as a church. And I'll show you that in a minute, but let's answer the first question. Why, Paul? Why would you be bringing this statement up right now about those who are hearing the word, sharing all good things with their teachers, their pastors. Well, there's possibly three reasons. First, we need to remember that these Christians in Galatia are, for the most part, pagan Gentiles. None of them had been raised in a, in, in a church or an organization where they were taught that they needed to tithe like Jewish people, bring their offerings to share with those who are operating the synagogue and teaching. And so Paul probably had taught this when he was there before, probably had encouraged them to do so, because apparently they had been. But the concept initially at least would have been foreign to them, and it appears that Paul has heard a report that Maybe they're not giving. Maybe they're not supporting some of these elders, and some of these elders are struggling, especially those who preach God's Word. Secondly, it's also possible that some of these false teachers who were Judaizers, who were coming down from Jerusalem, were saying something like this. Well, you know that Paul, he says that you're no longer under the law. So if you're no longer under the law, it means you don't need to give. Maybe they were doing that. We don't know. 
But thirdly, I think what he's doing is he's leading them back, all of them back, to how the church actually began. He wants to show them how the flourishing of the church, of the family, is based on healthy relationships and sharing all good things with one another, all good things. So let's have a look at that. Let's have a look. Let's go back and have a look. And let me show you just a few things. From the Word of God, you hear it from God yourself, and you determine what it says. I'll try to guide a little bit, but not too much. Acts 2.42, you'll all remember this. Here's the four pillars of the church. The day that the church was born, Peter preaches the gospel. Thousands of people come to faith in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is poured out. It's remarkable. And then the four pillars are given to us in Acts 42. It says this, and they devoted themselves. Stop, listen. Devoted is a word which means they gave their all to these things. Without exception. And here they are. To the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. So these are the four pillars, as I mentioned. The the church is just a week old at best when these things are being written. And they devote themselves to these four things. The apostles' teaching, which is exactly what Paul is talking about in Galatians 6.6, right? The, The Bible being taught, being taught to you, expounded, open to us so we can learn from it, so we can be catechized. All Christians need to be trained up in sound doctrine and the gospel for salvation for life so that you yourselves can grow, but also so that you can share this with people who do not know Jesus. Then second, second in order is the fellowship. It's listed second in that group, and and it can't therefore mean simply just shaking hands. and it, It can't mean just that, and it doesn't. It is, again, the word koinonia. It's the sharing of all good things. Thirdly is the breaking of bread, which we do every week here at the Rock Church. We break bread. It's communion, right? And then lastly is the prayers. So I hope you will see this, that all four of those things are spiritual in nature. They're biblical in nature. Dr. Luke, who's writing the book of Acts, he goes on. He's a factician. He's been interviewing all of the apostles, and he's writing the record of what happened. And then he goes on to say this, just a few verses later, he says, and all who believed, look at this, were together. So in other words, all who believed. Now this is Jerusalem, guys. There's four, five, six, seven thousand people now have have joined the church. It's exploded after that first sermon. I wish I could preach sermons like that, right? But all were together. It doesn't mean that they were all together in one place, but they were all together in unity and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now listen, clear, hear me. This one verse, to this day, freaks people out. It freaks people out, and it should. Do we practice this kind of generosity today? I mean, really? Is it prescriptive or just descriptive? I'll let you answer that as you pray to the Holy Spirit. Some would would call this socialism. Some have called it that. It's not. (laughs) It's what they did because the Holy Spirit was impacting their lives. A few weeks later, maybe a month or two later, we read this in Acts 4.32. 
So things are moving along. The church is growing. Peter and John have now gone to the temple and, and the gate beautiful to the temple and preached Jesus, right? A little bit of persecutions come their way. They don't mind that. They're looking for a few beatings and whippings. They're okay with that. They're the leaders of the church at that time. And then we, we read this in chapter 4, verse 32. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. So, so even a few weeks or maybe months later, Unity. You know, nobody's standing back going, you know, I don't know. We've been given a lot, you know, so far, and I don't know. How much more can we give? No, there's unity about this. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was her, or him or her was his own. But they had everything in common. Now, this is the second time that you've heard the words in common, right? You heard it back in Acts 2, 44 and 45, and you're hearing it again here in this verse. The word in common is the root word koinos of koinonia. It's the same thing. So again, th- this isn't about shaking hands, having a drink, talking about your, your past you know, bike ride or whatever. That's not what fellowship is. It's having all things in common. It's koinonia. So the generosity was so over the top that many people were actually, as you go on in this passage in chapter 4, it was so out of control. They were so happy to just serve one another and give that some people were actually going out and selling their lots, their properties, their their highland lots up past Quest University that were worth like $300,000, and they were selling them, and they were bringing them, and the Scripture says they were laying them at the feet of the apostles. Well, one guy saw that happening. And here's what it says about him in verses 36 to 37. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, no kidding, but look at this. He's a Levite, a native of Cyprus. He sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, I've got to ask you the question, because I've asked this question, and commentators have asked this question. Why? Like, they just told us that people were selling plots of land and, and were bringing it to the apostles' feet so the apostles could distribute it to the church as needed. Why single out this man? It's interesting. Do you know what the Levites were in the Old Testament? They were the priests. They were the ones who were fully supported by the tithes and the offerings of the people. And so you have this man who's from that heritage, and in the days of Jesus, they were also getting, as part of their inheritance, land given to them. He's bringing the sale, the proceeds of land, to the apostles' feet and laying it at their feet. What does it mean? Is it a statement? Could be. It could be a statement of, yeah, in the New Testament... As Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, you can read it on your own. Giving in the church is about generosity that abounds. It's more. So this was incredibly symbolic. Let me also put it this to you. Laying something at someone's feet meant two things. One, you were giving it up. You were not holding on to the purse strings. You yourself were giving it up. But secondly, you were giving it to their authority. Oh, that flies well today, doesn't it? Don't you just love that? That's what it means, though. So it raises an important point that we should clarify here today. Let me ask you this. How did Peter and John support themselves in the, in the early church? From the very beginning of their church, how did they support themselves? What about the rest of the apostles? How did they support themselves? Let me help you. For the previous three years, they didn't work. As they followed Jesus, they were supported by the people who followed Jesus... And also Jesus supported them. 
Occasionally, he performed miracles and fed a bunch of people, right? One time, he actually told one of his disciples to go catch this fish and grab the coin out of his mouth so they could pay their taxes. Symbolic. It actually happened. But the point is, I'm Jesus. I will look after you. I will provide for you. This is how it was happening. I, I, I would guarantee you this as well. Do the research. There's no evidence whatsoever that any of the apostles in the New Testament worked to support themselves. Peter is the, Paul, pardon me, Paul is the only one who at any point in time in his life uh, actually did some tent making. And the reason why he did that, by the way, was because when he was in Corinth, some of the people there didn't like the idea that he was living off the people. And so he didn't want to cause a stumbling, so he actually went back to his tent making to support himself, but he didn't do that all the time. He didn't do that all the time. There's a great story about Peter. Remember when Peter, after he denied Jesus three times and before Jesus ascends, he comes to Peter who had decided to go back to work. Remember that story? Peter says, I'm going fishing, right? He's a fisherman. Jesus is, you know, he hasn't seen Jesus. You know, he's risen from the dead, but he hasn't seen him. And so he decides to go fishing. But Jesus has a couple of things in mind when he comes to Peter. He says, Uh, First of all, he comes to restore him because Peter had denied him three times and he wanted to restore him. But he also, if you remember the story well, it was really a commissioning story because what Jesus said is, Peter, I don't want you going back to the fishing business. I want you to what? What did he say to him three times? Feed my sheep. It was a commissioning story. So please see two things from this. The evidence is clear. Uh, from the earliest days of the church, the people in the church practiced sacrificial, over-the-top giving that, honestly, we don't see today. They did. And, secondly, they supported their apostles and the elders and pastors of their churches, Timothy and Titus, throughout the New Testament. You see it. They did. The reason why I, I put that to you this way today is not for my good. Please hear me. Please hear me. Uh, I... I I'm fine. I rely on the Lord Jesus to pray. It's not a a personal request here. I actually am more concerned about the man who follows me. I am. That he is well supported so that he can come to this community and pastor you and actually be able to live here. And as some of you know, that's not easy to do. So what do we do? So that's why I'm, I'm encouraging about this is that we also understand that there's a lot of misinformation out there. A lot of misinformation. And young people are easily reading into that and totally mistaken. And we get all caught up in these kind of things rather than sharing, loving, and making Jesus known. That's what we're commissioned to do. A couple of other highlights for you. Paul also wrote to the Corinthians, interestingly, in chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints. Yes, money and giving is talked about in the New Testament. As I directed the churches in Galatia. Now that's interesting because we're in Galatians. So also you are to do. It's not a suggestion, it's a command. On the first day of every week, which is Sunday, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. As he may prosper is beautiful because it means as you have the ability. That's important. So that there will be no collecting when I come. Then in writing to Timothy, he says this, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For look at this, the scripture says... You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. This is, again, very ticklish for those who want to separate the Old Testament mode of giving from the New Testament, because he's quoting from the middle of the law of God in Deuteronomy 25 and Leviticus. 
That's Leviticus 19. Those are the verses that he's quoting. You shall not muzzle an ox, and the laborer deserves his wages. This is instruction from the Apostle Paul for our churches today. And so, of course, we know this. Hear me. We don't believe in the law of tithing today. The church in the New Testament doesn't teach that. But the principle of generous giving certainly is. Certainly is. And lastly, verse, uh, chapter 9, verses 13 and 14 of 1 Corinthians, Paul writes this. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. So he's first setting it up and saying this. You, you know this, my Jewish brothers and sisters, but everybody else, you should know this by now, that all of the priests and the people who served in the Old Testament synagogues and in the church and through the sacrificial system, they were supported by the people. Then he goes on to say, in the same way, the Lord Jesus commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And so when we return to our key verse today, let me give you this illustration of what it's supposed to look like in the church today. <laughs> what it's supposed to actually look like in the church today. Christian disciple-making is to be done in family, in community, in, in a place where the student and the teacher are in a mutually beneficial relationship. I liken it a little bit too when I went to seminary not too many years ago, or maybe when some of you went to university. I paid something called, uh, it started with a T too, which is amazing, but I paid a tuition to go there. It was quite a bit of money, and I'm sure many of you did too. And, and when I paid that tuition, I never, ever thought of my professors or teachers as greedy people or people who were getting paid too much after all the education and work that they've gone to to be there. But no, actually the way it was seen and the way I saw it, and I think they saw it, was we were there to bless one another. Of course they needed the tuition to be able to do what they did, and, and of course they were there to bless me and teach me and help me to grow. And so it's, it's interesting. I, I have memories of many of my high school, university, and, and uh, seminary professors that are awesome. I love them. They, they, they poured into my life in so many ways, but still, still we, we partnered in that way. And so how do we practice this in the church today? How do we practice this in the church today? Well, obviously, it's not just about your pastors, okay? It's not just about your pastors. What, what about missionaries? What about people who are raised up through the Rock Church and who also teach us and teach us about needs of people in another place? What about Young Life who teach us about the needs of teenagers in this community? And they teach us about that. They exhort us about that. And then how do we respond? We, sh we share with them. We support them. Um, and other Christian ministries could be supported in that way too, Many of you are blessed by the Gospel Coalition, Desiring God, Union Gospel Mission. I am. They teach us. They, they, they pour into our lives. And sometimes they actually ask us to, even though they're down there or wherever they are, they ask us to give. And we've been using the resources. Maybe we should share. But uh, even more practical, what about your missional community group leaders? I remember a few years ago, please don't think about this in my house today, but I remember a few years ago, someone going, gosh, we're going through a lot of, of plates and dishes and cups keep getting broken and, you know, I'm going to have to buy new ones. Well, maybe sometimes we should think about besides bringing our little, you know, a little potlucky thing uh, to, to the dinner, maybe we should be thinking about chipping in if there's a need, right? Maybe we should actually be wondering about whether we should ask about that. Do you, do you need help with that or is there anything we could share with you about that? That's very practical. And so that's our point number one. Learn to sow by sharing. 
You're never going to reap. We're never going to sow and reap in the way that the Scripture wants us to do or encourages us to until we get to the point where we realize we've got to take our hands off our stuff and give it back to Him and be joyful in the way that we do it. So, so why, next question is, why does Paul move from verse 6 to do not be deceived, right? That's what comes next, which is, whew. well, for starters, it's been one of the themes of the letter. They may have been deceived by the false teachers at this point, but Paul is now segueing, I think, to this great metaphor of sowing and reaping. And what he wants them and us to know is that we're not to be deceived about this. If you want your life to result in a great harvest, a reaping that is from the Lord, then you must first learn the lesson of sowing, which is sharing. So point number two is, sow well to live well. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. Another word for that is destruction. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. One of the most beautiful parables, I think most of you would agree, uh, that Jesus ever preached uh, is in Matthew 13. It's in the other Gospels too. It's the parable of the sower, right? You guys know that one. It's a beautiful, beautiful parable. Um, He tells the story of a sower who went out one day um, with a bag of seeds, and he's walking out into the field, and he starts casting these seeds. And and it talks about four different kinds of soil. There's the hard-packed Uh, paths that the the soil falls on, and then there's this rocky ground, and then there's this thorny ground, and then there's this really good soil. And so people all get all, you know, what is it about the soils? Is it about the seed? You know, what is it about? Well, it's about a lot of things. But the parable is ultimately about how every human being responds to the gospel. That's ultimately what it's about. Uh, The soils, therefore, represent our hearts, which are either hard, rocky, thorny, all of which ultimately reject the gospel as compared to the heart that is open, receptive to the gospel. The final reality of the parable is the same as our text today. It's either salvation and eternal life with God or destruction and eternal death. It's an either-or. So Paul starts with the term, the warning that God is not mocked to make sure that you and I understand that in the spiritual arena, the result is exactly the same as the agricultural arena. In the same way that it is guaranteed in the world of farming that what, what you, whatever seed you put into the ground will, A, produce the fruit that that seed is. In other words, if you put a tomato seed in the ground, you're not going to get a watermelon. We all know that. This is science, man. This is natural law. As in the same way that that is what happens in the natural world, that will eventually also, and that it will also eventually produce fruit, the exact same principle applies in the spiritual world. Whatever you sow, that will you also reap. It's black and white. It's exactly that way. And so when he said God is not mocked, it's, it's true in farming and in our spiritual lives. The term literally, literally means this. God cannot be taken lightly. <laughs> he can't be taken lightly. And so when he goes on to say, for the one who sows to his own flesh will, reap the fle- will, uh, will from the flesh reap cor- corruption or destruction, he means that sowing to the flesh does lead to destruction. It really does. So this then is the key here. Paul is saying, the Holy Spirit is saying to us, that what naturally happens in the physical, natural, material world also happens naturally in the moral and spiritual world, but with much graver 
consequences. So think about the parable of the sower again. What really is one of the most incredible features of that story? I, I had to have this pointed out to me years ago by a brilliant teacher. Um, and I, I remember looking at, well, it's, of course, it's the soils, you know, it's the seed, which is the word of God, which is Jesus, you know, and, you know, like, fail, fail, fail. The point that, that we should see from that parable is this. The sower is casting the seed indiscriminately everywhere. He's not concerned that some of it is falling on, the, oh, I don't want to put it here, I need to put it here or here. You know, he's not concerned about that. It's, it's generosity. It's Jesus casting the seed, by the way. That's the picture. And it's just casting it, giving it away, not caring exactly where it lands. It's generosity. It's being liberal. So think about it illustratively in two ways. Number one, isn't that exactly the way how it comes to sowing to our flesh? Right? When you think about sowing to the flesh and you go back to some of the things, the sins of the flesh, the works of the flesh... Isn't it sometimes like we're, well, we're very generous there. We have no problem thinking that if I have a problem with drinking, I'm just going to spend more money on drinking, right? I have no problem with that. I have a, I have a, I have a booze budget. Some people do. I have no problem being generous in the areas that give me pleasure, that make me look better, make me feel better. It's the flesh. Well, how then do we counteract that? Well, the Scripture teaches us, as Paul has been doing, by walking with and sowing to the Spirit. Well, how do we do that? Well, hearing God's Word and being generous within the family of God in every possible way, to be constantly be thinking about how can I give more to Christ? How can I give more? And hear me on this, please. This is not, this is not prosperity gospel thinking, okay? This is not if you give more money, you know, you're going to... That's not what it's about. It's not just about money, Although, for many of us, the struggle sometimes is, it is just about money. But we need to get over that. We need to learn that it includes helping, serving, and caring for others generously in the body of Christ. It's a struggle. So that's the point, I think, then, isn't it? Paul has already said that our old sinful nature is keeping us from what we really want to do. Even though we feel whenever we go into those realms, we're pretty generous with what we will spend and how much we will give ourselves to those things in that area. At the end of the day, as a Christian, if the Holy Spirit has come into you and infected your heart, you're like, ah, actually, I know it's not a matter of obligation. I know I really actually want to do this. Then start doing it. Start leaning in that direction. And it begins, it begins by giving away some of the things that you're holding on to too tightly. And so that's what it is. Sowing to the Spirit is to give yourself and everything you have to Him. Give and serve. It's good for you and for the family that He has placed you into. Invest your time, talent, and treasure in the kingdom. Read the end of Luke chapter 12. It's awesome. So this is sowing well, and that results in living well. Point number three, and we'll close with this as he does. Keep on sowing. He says in verses 9 and 10, And let us not grow wearying of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially, look at this, to those who are of the household of God. So Paul concludes with this, and it's like I said last week in this letter. They have become in Galatia susceptible to the downside of the Christian walk. It's tough. It hasn't been easy. 
You know, in some cases, they, they have been giving and serving a lot. In some cases, they've been bearing other people's burdens, and they've had their own burdens. And yes, people have been coming and helping them getting under that rock and helping them lift it off them. Yes, they've been trying to, to carry their own load and, and, and their own little backpack. But for goodness sakes, it's, it's man, it's just, I don't know. It just, I thought with Jesus, and even within the family, it would be easier, it would be better. And yet there are struggles And so it seems like this life is full of suffering and roadblocks instead of the love, joy, and peace that we're all hoping for. In the midst of that, when that rises up in our hearts and our minds, Paul is saying, keep going by keep on sowing. Finish the race, he's saying. He says, don't grow weary. I know that it feels sometimes like like, like that you want to, but here's the key. Keep doing good. Keep sharing even when it hurts. Because listen, the laws of nature are the same as the promises of God. If you're sowing, you will reap. It's guaranteed. If you're sowing, you will reap. And here's three principles or ways that you can look at that you're going to reap. And it's not, again, financially. Please hear me on that. But one is, sowing and reaping, this principle that we need to see as we do this, requires... Waiting. It requires patience. You plant those little seeds, right? You wait for your tomatoes. I do every year. It requires patience. And let me also put it this way. There's seasonality to it, but there's also long-term seasonality to it. So, so if we sow, there are, is some reaping that we will see in the short term too. In every season of life, we'll see some reaping. But sometimes you've got to wait, and you've got to wait, and you've got to wait. Every couple of weeks, Janice and I go out on the front of our house, and she points to this I think it's a, a fruit tree of some kind. I can't remember what it is. I'll, I'll get it wrong, so she's not here to correct me anyway. But she'll keep pointing to it. And she goes, you know, I've been waiting now. It's three years for that thing to bud. I think it's a dead tree. I think I'm going to take it back. And I think you're going to dig it up, dig it back. But anyway, she's still waiting. And I keep saying, maybe next year, honey. I, know, I don't know what I'm talking about, but I'm hoping, right? And sometimes that's what it's like in our Christian life. It's like, because some of these things God is going to want us to be patient with for a while. Number two, listen to this. We do reap in proportion to what we sow. We do reap, the scripture says, in proportion to what we sow. But number three is really interesting. We actually reap more than we sow. We reap more than we sow. Well, how does that work? With God, it's like compound interest. You don't see it today, but trust me. Trust God, because he says, Jesus says, you will. You will reap. Jesus said this at the end of the parable of the soils. These were his words. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, look at this, in one case, a hundredfold, in another 60 and another 30. So the good news is is that almost all of us in this room are going to reap more than we sow. (laughs) And in some cases, though, it's going to be exponentially more than others. Which one would you like to be? Which one would you like to be? We're all going to hear the words of Jesus when we pass. Well done, good and faithful servant. Or at least we all hope to. What's the measurement? So friends, listen, I understand it's hard to make ends meet half the time. I understand, right? We all understand that. But the rewards of sowing and and sharing will be much fruit. Our harvest is going to be this. First, the deep satisfaction, if you stick to it long enough, of seeing other people's lives transformed by the gospel because you were generous. Because you were there and you were generous. Second, we may get the deep satisfaction of seeing families and communities squamish, redeemed and restored. Why? 
because we as a church body, in concert with the other churches in this community, are living this out by being generous people. And thirdly, we may even sell people whose burdens we've helped bear become burden bearers themselves, become disciples who make disciples and go on and listen to me, this would actually be good. You may only reap 30-fold, but the person who you discipled and you watered and you helped bear the burden is one of those people who it's 100-fold. That would be awesome too. It's still the spirit of multiplication. Friends, I hope we see today that what Paul's getting at here, what the Holy Spirit is getting at here, is about our relationship together. And so we need to ask ourselves as I close today, We need to ask ourselves and ask the Holy Spirit to talk to us about how are we blessing this body in relationship or how are we taking away from blessing this body in relationship. Let's pray together.